Are you critically insane, have a lot of excess money, or even better, both? Then you can support this podcast by clicking on the ACAR support button. You can give as rarely and as little as you want, which, judging by the quality of this, I'm sure you're wanting to do. Hello and welcome to A PhD Student Reads episode 17 in a month's time. The podcast can uh, drink alcohol here in the, the United Kingdom and and rent a car, I think, for yeah. a lot of money. But <laughs> in seven, seven, eight episodes time, it can rent a car for less when it's 25. Um, I am the titular <laughs> PhD student, Daniel Underwood. I made a note of it this time so I didn't forget until about halfway through. And uh, joining me once again, the Peruvian panel reader, Rodrigo Cocti. How's it going, buddy? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing well. Can't complain. Um, it, it's funny when you say that uh, our podcast will drink in, at age 18. In Ontario, in Canada, where I live, the age where you can start drinking is 19, which always always strikes me as super arbitrary because what is happening in that one year between 18 and 19 that you think will make a vast difference? I, I don't know why they chose that. Uh, across the province in Quebec, it is 18. So when people turn 18 in Canada, in Ontario, they often drive like an hour this way and then drink up and then come back. And it's like, what are we solving here by having different age uh, requirements for drinking? I don't know. Uh, maybe smarter people than I have reasons for this. I mean, not to sound, I don't know, too liberal, but I always... Drinking ages seem a bit arbitrary to begin with. I mean, I suppose technically the law is you can drink in your home, mm-hmm. however old you are. But people can do a lot worse to themselves yeah. legally than, than drinking alcohol. But I, I don't know. There we go. Say, I, I'm a scientist. I work with cells. <laughs> I, I don't know what people do. Um, as always, like, share, subscribe. Uh, tell your friends we are nearly at 400 we're getting around roughly 30 listens a month now, which is quite good, I think. Um, Solid. And, yeah, so nearly at 400. So by that logic, it's about 370 now. So plus 30, 400. This could be the one. Episode 18. We'll all start drinking for a there we mild go. celebration. <laughs> uh, additionally, spoilers for old books. I don't think I've ever said that, but no one has ever contacted me in any way to... But, I mean, well, I was reading Age of I mean, Apocalypse but now that we're growing, yeah, now that we're growing, you might be getting Someone's going to be like, oh, I didn't read Age of Apocalypse 20 <laughs> years ago, and now you've ruined it for me. Listen, if anything, well, maybe you saved them from... Exactly, I've done them a favour. Mm-hmm. You just read the Wikipedia synopsis, it makes more sense than those uh, four epic volumes. And barely makes sense, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> read one day, X-Men, it's, it's, uh, it's much better, Yeah, and probably looks a lot nicer. Speaking of modern day X-Men, you're up first this month, and I know you have been reading modern day X-Men, but what else? Yeah, I have been reading a lot of uh, Hickman's X-Men, and uh, I also continued reading just on my own time the the Brubaker uh, Daredevil run, which is the, the one that continued Bendis. And then after that, when I was trying to pick what I was going to read for this month, I went to, because I was so into this Ed Brubaker stuff, I, I decided to pick one of his image books. Uh, it is a limited series. He's had quite a bit on image. Like, let me just take a quick look at my comic book shelf. You know, he's had uh, Fatal. He's had Criminal. You know, like even put out some some original graphic novels like Bad Weekend. He's had quite a bit, right? So 
Uh, the one that I chose to read, though, is The the Fade Out. Uh, are you familiar with this book, The Fade Out? I am not, but that's quite a nice cover. Yeah, it's, I think, a typewriter, some blood. It is, uh, it's like a three-volume noir book set in, I guess, like the classical Hollywood era, which I think is, like, uh, vaguely determined to be between, like, the 1920s and the 1960s. This one uh, specifically is set in 1948. But it does flash back a little bit to earlier, and so that's kind of where it's set at. So, you know, 1948 set out, uh, set up shortly after the Second World War, which is somewhat important to the plot of the book. It's written, uh, it's creator-owned. Uh, the two people that are credited are Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips, which is, Sean Phillips is, is uh, Ed Brubaker's longtime uh, contributor, I would say. Um, this leads me to believe that he has probably done the inking, the pencils, and maybe even the lettering because there's nobody else credited here. The other person that it does get a credit in the opening pages, though, are the colors. The colors are done by Elizabeth Breitweiser, and uh, she does a fantastic job throughout. Like, this is a, a noir book, and I think she kind of captures that feel very well. Um, so the, the, the fade out, it's a, a crime mystery book, I would say. It's published by Image, it centers around like the production of a movie that is kind of having an endless amount of trouble, you know, like reshoot after reshoot. Uh, they have a very unhappy director. The screenplay writer is kind of just haunted by the memories of, of the war. Like I said, it's set shortly after the Second World War. And when things, I guess, you just assume they couldn't go any worse. The starlet of the film, it, it, this up-and-coming actress called Val Summers uh, is dead. You know, that's kind of where we start off, and that's the the inciting incident, I guess, that kicks off the story. The The series, like I mentioned, is three volumes, and they are called Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. And that's obviously, like, a reference to a three-act structure that is important in, in, like, written storytelling, like a comic book form, but also in movie storytelling, which is what the, 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 the comic book is about. Um, if you're not, obviously, familiar with a three-act structure, it's generally... Act one is the setup, act two is the the confrontation, and act three is the resolution. And this is like there's so much written about it, I guess, like on the theory of writing. And you know, you can there there's stuff out there that dates back to I would say even like the the fourth century and so on. You can find a, a bunch of stuff on the three act structure. So typically the first act is set for exposition. It's trying to bring you up to speed of who your characters are and so on. And the first volume of of it does that right and so the second act or what's called the rising action typically has the protagonist attempting to solve the problems that are introduced in the first act and finding themselves in worsening and worsening situations and the second volume of this book does that and then the third act or the resolution is typically the story it solves what you what you've been looking for and the third volume does that right and so that's i think the most interesting part of this book to me how Within each volume, the, I would say you can probably also find these three acts, right? The, the 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 exposition, the rising action, and then the resolution. But then oh, the overarching story is told in, in that way. It's just brilliantly uh, mapped out and planned out, I think. And so if you take anything from what I will talk about today about the fade out, is I hope that uh, you, you go and check it out. Like, I, you know... We mentioned some spoiler alerts early on. Like we will talk about the mystery and how it gets solved and what it is. But if you haven't read it, then I suggest maybe pause it here. Maybe go all the way to the middle of the the section where you know we'll talk about a different comic book and go check it out because I think it is worth checking it out. Um, 
I rem- this also kind of reminded me a lot about the movie uh, Mank. I don't know if you have seen Mank. It is a movie. Yeah, it's the director, David Fincher, of like, say, Gone Girl fame, among some other things. His dad wrote this this um, this movie about uh, the screen screenplay writer uh, Mankiewicz. I can't remember his first name. Goes by Mank, who was the original writer uh, uh, for the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Um, I think. Orson Welles gets most of that credit. There was like a big whole thing there, but it's kind of of that era. So if you've seen Mank, if you've seen kind, you have a good idea of what's happening behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the story has a lot of, I guess, themes that are discussed, and I just want to shout out a couple of them because if you, I guess, are in any way, you know, have some issues discussing this or hearing this, I want to make sure that you're not like, there's a lot of sexual abuse. There's a lot of child abuse. There is, you know, like closeted actors, alcoholism, uh, a fair degree of violence. You know, the, these are less so probably triggering to people, but you know, it involves communism and the FBI and so on. It, it's very fascinating and, you know, we'll kind of go through it, but I just wanted to make sure Sounds I got like all a of very that. Cheerful read. Yeah, it is very depressing, I will say. It is very depressing, but it's very well-written. I mean, I think you don't go into reading a noir book without some sense that, you know, like, it's not going to be a cheerful, sunny book. Um, The first book, it introduces you to your main characters, and it introduces you straight out of the, like, the front page. I I think because I have a blurry background, I don't know if you can see this, but it has kind of, like, faces, and it tells you who's who, and it gives you your main characters. It tells you... Charlie is the main screenwriter. Jill Mason is an ex-screenwriter. Earl Rath is the leading man of the movie that we are us. There, Val or Valeria Summers is the up-and-coming starlet that you know we will find out die soon. You have the publicity girl. You have Phil Brodsky, which is like the muscle, the studio security. Um, some other characters. You have Tyler Graves, who's like a heartthrob, like a young, good-looking guy. There's the the co-founder of the the studio that is doing this movie, Victor Thursby. Uh, the director is the German director, Franz Schmidt. So you have all these characters that, like, when you look at those first couple of pages, you're like, this seems overwhelming. I don't know if I'm going to remember all these names and faces and, and jobs. Uh, it reminded me a lot of, have you ever read uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's A um, Hundred Years of Solitude? I have not. It is uh, a book set in a fictional, I think Macondo is the name of the city, and he repeats the the names of the fam- of like the men. The men are often named uh, for their fathers and their grandfathers. Right. And so you have like all these like Aurelianos and so on that are over. And so it's so confusing that he starts off by giving you a family tree. Like you can often in copies of the like different editions of the book, you can find a family tree at the beginning. So that if you are ever confused throughout, you can always flip back and see who they're talking to. And I found that very helpful. It it. Each volume has mostly the same characters in, in this kind of the, the cast of characters that they introduce. But uh, it changes volume to volume with some dropping off, some jumping in, depending on, you know, what's happening in that volume. Right. And it's also very reminiscent of like starting off uh, in, in when you went in productions and you have like a, 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 a sheet, a call sheet for for actors and you kind of see them in order of importance. And so it's like, you can tell that every detail of this book is kind of like rich with movie, like love of movie making. And uh, anyways, I think let's, let's kick into this story. So it starts off with what a scene that they call a wild party. Like our main character who is Charlie, the screenwriter, 
He kind of wakes up in a bathtub and he's like hazy as to what happened last night. He remembers that he was at a Hollywood party. And as he's kind of like blacking in and out of like what happened last night, he remembers seeing his his uh, his, I guess, former friend, it seems like Jill Mason, who was the ex screenwriter that we talked about in the beginning there. You know, he vaguely remembers uh, being in in a in a closet receiving uh, oral sex, I guess, which is I would not call it out, but it is a rather important moment that comes back later. You know, he remembers getting into a fight. He kind of remembers leaving the party. And then he vaguely remembers some interactions with uh, with the, the Val Summers. And as he's kind of piecing that all together and leaving the bathroom where he is, he walks out and then he sees uh, that Val is lying on the floor, her body kind of just leaning on like the bottom part of a, of a love seat, of a, of a sofa. And she is dead. And it seems like she's been strangled to death. Like her uh, neck has like those kind of that bruising and lacerations that you can expect from it. He freaks out. He he doesn't remember what happened last night, and so he just decides uh, to to leave. And the next morning, as he's trying to deal with like what he's going to do, what he's going to say, uh, the news comes out, and they tell like you know the the PR woman that we mentioned earlier. He she comes up to to talk to him and tells him like, hey, you know, like the, the filming is done for today, and he assumes that he's going to hear that he's dead, and then she reveals like, yeah, you know, Val Summers committed suicide, they found her uh, hung up against the wall, which is not how he had found her, right? And so immediately he knows that something is, is wrong here, he, he doesn't know exactly what, but as this book starts, you know, like you start finding out more and more, you start discovering that Charlie and Val, this this woman, they kind of had a bit of a relationship and that they were able to see or recognize that the other person was kind of broken. Like Charlie, the screenwriter, is very tormented by his the war that he's trying to overcome of having been over. And she uh, had been through a lot in her youth and she they kind of are able to see that in each other. And one of the re- one of the the repercussions of this war and the way that it's haunting him is that Charlie, who is the writer of this movie, is not actually able to write. He has writer's block, and so secretly behind the scene, his Jill Mason, you know the, the who is seemingly an ex friend, he is actually they're pretending to be in a fight, and so Jill is writing and Charlie is taking the credit. And the reason why that is is because uh, Jill is. I guess either seen to be or perhaps is a communist, and so he has been blacklisted right. from from Hollywood because in in this era that is uh, what was happening, right? And uh, so they kind of have this arrangement, and as they are like trying to just pull out more pages, because again, also if you have seen Mank, you can kind of see how crazy the writing was at this time. You know, it's like rewrites happening on the spots it's just like people throwing out ideas it's not very not as structured as maybe you would think that they are in writing rooms today and so as they're trying to work on this he looks into his pocket and he realizes that he has val's uh underwear right like so and so he pulls it out and jill sees this and against his better senses uh charlie decides to 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 tell him what 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 it is that he he knows, which isn't much, but he knows that he was there, like, and he woke up and he saw Val dead, but then that later she was, uh, you know, like, they were saying that it was suicide, and so he knows that something is up there. Now, unfortunately, Jill, who has been, again, blacklisted by, in this industry, is not living, like, the most, uh, I guess, ideal life. Uh, often he's 
heavily relying on alcohol. It it falls on on Charlie to to bail him out of these things because a he's stressed that he's going to reveal their arrangement where he's not really able to write but is just pretending to write for Jill or that he's going to get in trouble. Plus, you know, there's some some relationship there that Charlie has with Jill's wife, and you know, it, it at later on we do find out that there was once a moment where it was a sexual relationship, but it's, I think it's mostly a lot of like guilt in that. You know, Jill has a family and he is not going well. So it's a whole thing. Um, as we continue reading this book, we find out that there are other uh, characters involved that somehow peripherally may have their own uh, problems that they're dealing with. Uh, he vaguely remembers that when he left the party, there was a, a white haired man with horn room glasses. He later, through his investigation, finds out that an actor friend of his also went with him that night, you know, and then at some point the the guy that's in charge of security was also somewhat involved, right? And so he's piecing all this together and he's doing his best. Uh, on a parallel thing, like Mason, his friend, he's out here also trying to figure out what's happening because he's tormented by the fact that these studios are able to just kind of get away with everything. They blacklisted him, then they've just propped up um, this... The, this uh, death to make it look like a suicide. And so they are both on in their own ways, trying to figure out what's happened, what happened in that night at the same time, like the show must go on the, they've brought in a new actress to replace uh, Val. And this, this woman's name is Maya silver, you know, Charlie against his, his better instincts starts getting in, involved with her too. And seeing her, in the same way as a broken young starlet that he sees a lot of co in common with. And so there's, I guess, maybe like a concern or worry that they're going to be in, uh, like going down parallel tracks. You know, as we continue investigating, we find out that at one point when uh, Val, the woman that died, and Charlie were in a place called Ojai on location uh, filming th this movie, they and they were out wandering around, they encountered the former, I guess, owner of this studio who is now kind of going through like Alzheimer's. He's very old, but he's a very, very uh, dark man. And he, I guess, is kind of involved in almost like a sex cult thing. Oh. So they kind of free the woman that was tied to a tree. It's like very disturbing. And, you know, like the... It is clear from that moment that Val uh, has some type of dark history in this Hollywood industry. Now, in Act 2, as we find out more about these characters, we find out that Val, when she was uh, a young girl, she was on a show called, I can't even remember, like Crazy Kids or something, right. like Crazy Club or something. It, it's some, I guess, meaningless show. But during that time there was a series of like child abuse that was happening. And there was uh, another actor on this show who was called Flapjack, who again was never able to really continue on in the Hollywood industry because he was so tainted by what had happened during the, this. And at some point, Charlie's reaches out to him and wants to know like what happened on that set. And he's kind of like, you know, she assuming that, that she did commit suicide, you know, like she wanted to be done with this at peace with this. Like she doesn't want to be doing this anymore. Like maybe you should respect that. But as they do more, as he continues to push more down that way, you know, his, his buddy, his writer, friend writer, Gil Mason, he is out here, uh, writing, uh, blackmail notes to the studios, uh, to the, the security, the, the studio people, because, 
he thinks that they are lying about this thing. So he sends out the note just to make them feel guilty about setting, uh, staging the suicide. And it seems pretty clear that the way that they're reacting is that they are trying to hide a different type of secret. So he chases like the, the head of security. He, they, they, they go to the same place that seems to be like a vault now for the studio where they keep things. They grab documents, they head to a beach, and they start burning things. And in that, I guess while they're trying to burn things, he manages to grab some files from from the car and goes back. And as he's looking into these files, uh, Charlie, the main character, he kind of realizes, like, why are people starting to get stressed out that I'm asking these questions? And then he it almost clicks on him instantly, like, Mason is doing something. So he looks around, he finds a, a, a crumpled uh, piece of paper because, you know, they type in typewriters and so they make mistakes. It's not like us where we can just delete and start again. Um, so this is, this is uh, I guess, like a, a blackmail note that has a lot of typos. And so he threw it out into the garbage, but it's still there. So he opens it and he reads it and he, cl- and he clicks on him. Like, this is why people are tensing up when I'm doing my questions investigating because he on his side is also doing this. And so... At that point, at that moment of confrontation, you know, like Gil Mason is able to reveal what he has found on his own, and that is that um, that they, the they, these files that they stole from the card they show their pictures of the sexual abuse that was being committed on the move on the set of uh, Crazy Kids or yeah. Crazy Club, whatever it is, like the one where Val Summer was a child, right? So it is child child sexual abuse that that is happening, and. Um, and so that's kind of, I guess, like why Val was so broken and why Charlie kind of saw this attachment to her because they were part of this industry that had just absolutely destroyed them. And so together they decide that they, the, the Hollywood industry can't keep getting away with this, right? And again, you know, like Charlie's kind of developing feelings for Maya and he's stressed out. And so they decide that a lot of this starts with with the founder of the studio that they work at, the man that kind of has these sex cults and so on. So they're going to go confront him. They go there and they find that uh, he's already dead. He's been taken care of. The loose ends are being tied up. And unfortunately, the person that has committed this murder is still in the house when they get there. And so as they're trying to escape, they, they manage to get into the cars. Our shots are flying by them. Charlie gets in, looks to his side. His buddy is dead. Like he he managed to get into the car, but he's now bled out. Not sure where to go. He goes to visit the the new starlet Maya Maya Silver, and uh, you know again he he's just too overwhelmed by emotion. He can't really remember what happened last night when he wakes up, and as he's piecing it together, he remembers his friend dying in the car. So he goes out to see the body still there. It's just covered. He goes back into the city, and he gets a call from the security guy telling him like, hey. You know, we're here in uh, Maya's house. Uh, she told us what happened. Like, you need to get here. And he thinks that he's going to get killed. But, you know, the guy, the security guy there, his job is the studio. And he's like, we just need to, like, tie loose ends. And I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to help you take care of this body. But you need to shut up. And so as, as, as this kind of, you know, like now he's getting more and more involved with this and all this darkness, he kind of wants to know like what happened and so in the beginning i mentioned like he starts piecing he starts putting these pieces together he remembers like this white-haired horn-rimmed guy it turns out that this guy he comes in in and out throughout the 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 story but never really in a major way and so you don't know too much about him you don't really find out until the truth is revealed by the security guy who actually did stage the suicide 
to solve the issue for for the studio, you find out that he is a an FBI agent who has been posing as a movie producer because, again, at that time, you know, it's slightly before, I guess, officially like the McCarthyism of that era, but this was already happening in in Hollywood, where like people that seemed too friendly to communism were getting blacklisted and so on. And so he was there trying to investigate like who these people were, and just kind of fell into the thralls of this power that Hollywood had over like these people. Right. And so he was like blackmailing people to get their secrets. He was, when they didn't have secrets to give, he was getting sexual favors and, you know, so on. And so he just got involved in all of this. And so what he really wanted was to almost have leverage over the studio. And so he wanted this truth about like this, this sex cult thing and, and, and the, the children's child sexual abuse that was happening and Val Summers was unwilling to give it. And so that's why him and like this fit of desperation or I guess anger that this woman was standing up to him, he ends up choking her uh, during the night after they, they had left that party. And, you know, then the studio head of security, who again, this loyalty is to the studio, he just needed to solve this. And so he staged the suicide. Uh, that FBI agent then gets taken off by the FBI and sent to a different place. Like new FBI agents are sent in. It's it, it solves it in a way, but there's never really a, a resolution for any of these people because I don't think that's ever what the story that Ed Brubaker was just trying to tell. I think he really was trying to tell, uh, portray just how broken this this Hollywood industry was at the time and probably still is in many ways. You know, like the Me, the Me Too stuff yeah. didn't happen that long ago. There was a story in Hollywood Reporter recently about this other producer who was like Scott Rubin, who's like an absolute monster. You know, there's... There's people that get away with too much uh, in this industry. So that's kind of, I think, the, the fade out. I think it's brilliant. I don't know that my description has get done it the justice that it deserves. It just kind of give you a, a major, I guess, summary or synopsis of what where, where the plot is going. But I, it's great. Uh, I think it's 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 absolutely it's it's very different than I think the the noir superhero stuff that I was reading with Daredevil. Um, I think the I think if I had not watched mm-hmm. Mank recently, I would be a lot more. Um, in the blue about like what kind of like the attitudes and and the settings right but this was this was uh this was great i so i was thinking i'll see so you said it's act one exposition heavy obviously in Mm -hmm. a book or a film which is less long obviously that you know Mm -hmm. that's all coming out at once so you know oh i'll just get through the exposition part at the front and then eventually the rest of the story will be fine but if these did these yeah. come out monthly? I don't know. Uh, is that a month's worth of exposition? Yeah. Is that how does it read? Like, like a month after month of just oh now is this this is a new thing to remember or is it more easily digestible? Yeah, and so that's the brilliant part I think of what Ed Brubaker is, and just in general comic book writers. I do think that they don't get enough credit for this in that. They write, say, like a 22-page issue, uh, issue every month, right? And so that issue kind of has to follow a general structure for it, too. It usually ends in a cliffhanger or like in a third third act kind of moment. You know, it has like a second act buildup. Like that issue has to follow that structure. And then that belongs to an arc or volume that also has to kind of generally follow that structure, and then those volumes build up to a full story that also has to follow that structure, right? And so that is, it's brilliant what they're able to do. I don't think if you read this monthly, there would ever be an issue where it was like, oh, this just felt like exposition. 
but you do see it that there's a lot more information being given to you in the first volume of the fade out than there is to say like an act three right like an act three you are moving pretty fast you have most of the pieces of the puzzle it's just very little that you're you're looking to to figure out right and so I it, I I remember starting to read this book monthly when it was first coming out. Like I read like the two issues and I really, really loved it. And then I was like, you know what? When this comes out in trades, I'm just going to read it all together. And so I ended up doing that. I never really got back to it. Like I had all three volumes chilling on my shelf and I was like, I'm going to give it a read. And it was great, I think. But but yeah, I mean, to your point, it it, 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 it is interesting how different of a read it might be if you're reading these monthlies. But I do think that the writer and the, the artist did a, a good enough job that it's like while issues in the first volume are more exposition-y. Like, it's still each issue within itself stands on its own and is good. Comic book novice, that's for sure. For sure, absolutely. I think it's also nice to hear a noir story that doesn't follow a grizzled has-been detective or uh, one of the other tropes. Yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely. So there you go, that is a solid recommendation. Well, maybe two, although I didn't think Mank was uh, Finch's best, not by a a long way. No, and, and I think my rating of Mank is like a movie, or my review, sorry, it's like it's a movie. It's like a movie for people in the movie industry because they're the only ones who think the movie industry is as interesting as they seem to. But like they're convinced that it is that this is like, a, and I, I think for people that are not in, it's like okay, cool. Like I think it, it feels very much like a three out of five for me. I think is what what I may have given it, uh, but I just think like it it helps you with that knowledge of like you know alcoholism and like weird deals and i don't know like all of that it's it, this book is very much of that vibe and it in that era interesting. that's something you can say about mank it uh, doesn't look yeah, like for sure films, which um, could also mm-hmm. be a drawback perhaps depending on your your tastes i did not read a noir or anything close to a noir i read something weird the story is weird the art is weird uh so prepare yourself for what might be the most vague synopsis I've ever said in uh, 17 episodes as I try to wrap my head around Unimaginable, published by Arcana Studio on the 2nd of March 2011. I didn't know who Arcana was, so according to Wikipedia, it is a Canadian animation studio started in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was originally an independent comics publisher, but now one of the country's largest, uh, publishing over 300 titles. And in 2012, they entered the world of animation. Looking at their filmography, I hadn't seen any of them, but oh, they seem to be going strong. So I presume they are at least financially viable. What, give, give me an example oh, of one. I kind of want to look them up. Google Chrome here right now. Films, television series, and shorts. Um, So we've got their first was The Clockwork Girl in January of 2014. Um, We've got Howard Lovecraft and the Undersea Kingdom. Their sequel to that, Howard Lovecraft and the Kingdom of Madness. Panda vs. Aliens came out this year. You know what? This Clockwork Girl, I'm pretty sure I have a friend who worked on this. That's so Ooh. interesting. I had never... Uh, I Just looking, because I've seen her post this picture of these people, I did not know what this was. Interesting. I'm going to look into this. But anyways, continue. Oh, Sorry oh. to, to Absolutely. Yeah. So, 
this was published by them. It was written by Tom Pinchuk, drawn by Kurt Belcher, coloured by Zach Turner, and lettered by Matt Nelson and Jared Rourke. I'm still uh, mm-hmm. enjoying reading about five names rather than the 50 names <laughs> uh, back when I was reading Age of Apocalypse. This was another uh, charity shop find for me. I think this was like 150. Uh, there's a uh, Oxfam here in Aberdeen that just sells books, and more often than not, there are comic books in there too. So, in fact, uh, last month when I was warning myself that I would end up buying all 150 of those DC graphic novel collections, they had three in there, so now I have 13 of 150. So that's a nice. problem growing in itself. But I did buy some new shelves, so they have places to go at the very least. There we go. Success. Um, as I said, this book is weird. I was showing uh, Rodrigo here the some of the the covers uh, before we started. <laughs> weird. So the story. We start off with a young girl floating on a mattress, I presume, in what looks like a river of brown ooze. A zeppelin flies overhead and picks her up. She is then placed into a machine. Uh, that washes her, measures her body from the size of her head, her height, her weight, um, and she's thrown at the other end, given what the book calls disguise number 86, which is basically a stripy shirt and leggings, some big boots, big gloves, a big coat, uh, some sort of beanie hat, and a uh, nose and ear mask, um, which sort of, the, the ear part sort of looks like the wings on the side of like original Captain America's helmet, and the nose is just like a big white nose um we are informed later that she's given these uh rather peculiar disguises because there's another one later mm-hmm. where she's got like a crocodile bill for a nose because the everyone else that lives in this city are more peculiar monster designs and so as she is a normal looking human being to fit in they have to sort of slap masks and strange clothes on her so she falls out of this machine and uh, lands on a chair and comes face to face with this humanoid creature that's sort of got a hexagon for a head and he's sat behind a desk. He, he ex- has this large sack of paper in front of him which he begins to read through explaining that the girl was found. She has no recollection of who she is or where she came from. Um, he explains that her human appearance baffled them and that's why she's wearing these... Uh, strange disguises he uh, then hands our lead character a piece of paper that's basically to her covered in just like maze like markings that she can't read mm-hmm. uh, and informs her that she has been assigned to the prefecture as a problem solver uh so our character agrees because well she's got nothing else going on in this uh strange land but before she can get to solving any problems she's instructed to go to sleep but not in a bed but in a ferris wheel this ferris wheel has 16 spokes um so 16 pods and Mm -hmm. it turns every 30 minutes so therefore when you get in you have a full eight hours sleep uh, to go around the ferris wheel which thinking about i could probably do with uh, a ferris wheel like that, or some sort of device to keep me asleep for eight hours rather than the go to bed at maybe 1am, wake up at six to continue crying through my PhD. <laughs> um, 
So she enters this wheel, even though she says she isn't tired, and then eight hours later she wakes up. Uh, so she makes this way, her way off the Ferris wheel, down like a ladder, and to where the problem solvers do their problem solving. We get the odd speech bubble about someone is clearly complaining about a love they have lost, and I guess it's like a tip line that you call up and they attempt to solve your problems. We are also introduced to the other two main characters in the book. A bug-looking person that Rodrigo pointed out, and I thought so too, looks like the aliens from Men in Black, like the tall, thin Mm -hmm. ones. And another guy that looks like he has a stone head, or maybe like a robot design. Um, And these are like our main trio of problem solvers that we follow. Uh, We also learn that when problems arise in the city... uh, they uh, don't think on the fly to come up with solutions. There is this rule book, and this rule book contains the solution to all problems uh, of their entire lives. Basically, their entire life revolves around this book. Any question they might have, the answer is in the book. Um, Stump asks what this city is, What? where are they? And her two compatriots inform her that the city has no name, and it's also where we're introduced to another rule of this world, the unimaginable, which I shall try and explain. Because it... So you can imagine things here, but you cannot can't imagine things. So, for example, here Stump says out loud, I couldn't imagine what to call a city, and that invokes the unimaginable. Like the panels go sort of negative, so they're all black with white outlines, and her people around her are like, "Oh, how don't do that." Mm-hmm. Um, so the unimaginable is revealed to be the prefecture's biggest problem. Uh, it's an unsolvable problem because it cannot be comprehended because it is literally to them unimaginable. Um, but. They don't think about that for now. The first problem they have to solve is a blocked sewer. Uh, but this sewer is not blocked with normal things you might find in a sewer, but is blocked with brains of a uh, monster later referred to as the thinker who has been thinking too much. Uh, the rule book suggests that they spray the brains with ethanol and kill it cell by cell, um, but there's just too much brain here for that to work. So Stump suggests that they go to the source of the problem. Um, oh, yes, sorry. Her name is Stump now. The, her two people, her two nameless friends, mm-hmm. just start calling her that out of nowhere. Um, and she just goes on with it, I guess. Well, she has no memory of who right. she is, so that is who she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so she said, why don't we just go to the source of the problem? And that is where they find a thinker huddled down. His problem is he cannot decide which is the more perfect shape, a square or a circle. And he's knelt down holding a cube and a sphere, just debating the pros and cons of uh, each shape. Uh, And this is causing his brain to expand out the back of his head. And uh, he's thinking so hard that it is starting now to take over the city. So this problem needs solving. So Stump Mm -hmm. just takes the two shapes and smashes them together. So then you end up with a cube with a sphere in the middle. And uh, the thinker now believes that this, this is indeed the perfect shape. And uh, his brain shrinks down and returns to normal. Problem number one solved. 
But the problem, the way out of the sewer, the trio come across their second problem, a cat in a tree. But as you might expect in uh, from what you may have gleaned from this world, it's not a normal looking cat, it's some sort of monster cat. Um, the rule book suggests that they climb the tree, or at the very least form like a person ladder by standing on the shoulders of other people and just grabbing mm-hmm. the tree, grabbing the cat out of the tree. But uh, that is unfeasible in this uh, scenario. But the tree is supported by a bunch of cables. And so uh, Stump has got pockets that are a bit like Mary Poppins' bag. And so she reaches in, pulls out a uh, pocket knife and starts to cut the cables. The tree falls down. They get the cat. Problem number two, solved. Uh, They go for lunch and we finally get names for the other two characters. Uh, of course, they don't actually have names because nothing in this in this realm right. has any sort of Would name. be that straightforward. Uh, so the bug-looking person is named Lank because it's tall, and the stone-headed person is Chin because he has quite a, a strong chin. Uh, a new problem has now arisen for them to solve. It's a, a weed has sprouted is what we are informed. We do not know what this weed is. But we are told by Lank that before they can go and deal with this, they must sleep for a full eight-hour cycle. And so so they do. The next day, because I think there's no real perception of time other than these eight-hour cycles, there's no sun, Mm -hmm. everything is brown. Uh, They go and approach this weed, and of course it isn't just a big plant, it is sort of like a tower of junk coming out the ground. Um... And after nearly invoking the unimaginable for a second time, Stump, Chin and Lank head inside, uh, much to the chagrin of the latter two. They are scared that this problem is too big for them to solve and they should leave and just some other problem solvers can just come and deal with it instead of them. But uh, Stump is like, we are problem solvers. It's our job to deal with this, so we might as well deal with it now. Mm-hmm. They continue to work their way up this tower, I guess, Uh and come across an area that is sort of, you know, like in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the aliens are sat around a, a ringed room. We'd imagine that, yeah. but instead of aliens sat on thrones, it's just like a ring of toilets. So mm-hmm. they enter that room, and after seeing the success that Stump had previously of thinking outside the box by smashing the two shapes together, Lank is like, right. I will do the same, and just pulls one of these toilets out of the ground. So I guess he is incredibly strong, or the ground is very weak. <laughs> he pulls it out the ground, and the ground sucks him through. Uh, so his two friends then follow him through, because, well, they have, that's a new problem for them to solve. And it's the only, so as uh, right. being problem solvers, they must solve it. Uh, they go through and uh, come across the cause of this weed, and it is a, a leaking pipe. But this pipe isn't just leaking... I don't know, water, it's leaking the unimaginable. And the unimaginable, again, is sort of like a negative colour. It's all black and white. There are handprints on it, which mm-hmm. is how they, uh, Lank and Chin, know it's the unimaginable, because I guess they cannot see. I think the negativity is just for the, the reader's perspective. Uh, so Stump, uh, Lank and Chin flee. This problem, they've decided, is now too big for them to deal with. They want nothing to do with it, so they are off, leaving Stump alone. She pulls out a giant wrench from her Mary Poppins bag pocket and uh, seals this leak. It seemed quite a simple problem to solve. In uh, She just, you know, pushes it. and If you uh, have the right yeah, tools, exactly. I guess. 
I mean, they're all wearing this like similar jacket, so I, I presume they all have these <laughs> fancy Mary Poppins pockets. Maybe it's a case of you have to imagine what you want to come out of the pocket. And she imagined a wrench, and so she had a wrench. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uh, goes out, and uh, Chin and Lank explain that they couldn't do anything because the rule book offers no solution to the unimaginable because it cannot be comprehended. It is unimaginable, so they just leave it. So it is the supposedly the cause of all the problems in this city, but because it is uh, uncomprehendable, they cannot do anything about it. Stump is very upset. She's angry that her team left her to solve the problem alone. She was angry that she was nearly crushed by the falling weed. So when she sealed the leak, it started to collapse. And she is angry by the circular logic that prevents everyone from doing almost anything, especially about the unimaginable. And she's also angry Mm -hmm. that the prefecture has not found a way for her to get home yet. So she tells them that they need to start thinking for themselves, that their entire life cannot revolve around this rule book. And by following it to the letter for everything, it's not getting them anywhere. Uh, So she heads off alone to try and put a stop to the unimaginable by herself. Uh, And so that she gets on like a like a mine cart uh, she uses her wrench again to to activate it and as she's shooting away she gets a message from the prefecture begging her to read the rule book at the very least so she pulls it out of her magic pocket gives it a read um and when she has a look through it she finds that they have known where the unimaginable is this entire time there are these two black and white handprints marked on a map. And uh, she's just further frustrated by this. She's like, you've known where it is this whole time. And you're telling me you've done nothing about it. To which they reply, well, we can't comprehend what the unimaginable looks like. So if we went there, we wouldn't know what we're looking for. And so mm-hmm. haven't been there. So she heads back to the thinker, the guy from the sewer. Uh, and because she can't comprehend anything from this rule book it's all these maze-like symbols and goodness knows what she just asks him for directions as to where this place is and for the first time in her entire experience in this city someone gives her a straight answer just the exact directions to where she needs to go and so she goes there and uh when she arrives at the unimaginable's lair um she is greeted by chin and lank uh, they aren't there to help her defeat the unimaginable, though. They have just been tasked with uh, bringing her back because that's their new problem to solve. But eventually, all three of them end up going inside and facing the unimaginable, which turns out to be three <laughs> giant people silhouettes. And uh, each of these giant silhouettes has one trial and gives each of the main characters one trial each. So Lank must pull a rope at the other end of some obstacles. Chin must move a block to a set goal before the uh, unimaginable move their piece. It's like a case of, you know, Chin pushes his block and then the unimaginable move their block, so on and so forth. Uh, Mm -hmm. But Stump's task remains undefined, but she must solve it before she gets crushed by some encroaching walls. Chin is the first to solve his challenge. He figures out that when the unimaginable were explaining the rules, they never said that he couldn't move his block more than one space. So he just pushes his block all the way to the end, and uh, that causes the unimaginable in charge of that challenge to Mm -hmm. burst. Next up is uh, Lank. 
And after navigating the spike pit and some monkey bars and other dangerous obstacles, uh, he comes across what looks to be like a lava pit that is too large for him to jump across. He'll have to wade through it to get to the rope on the other side. Uh, but he overcomes his fear and slowly starts to put his foot inside this lava, only to realise it's cold, and then he just runs across and pulls the rope. And that's two of the three unimaginables defeated. Nice. Stump is having uh, less success, unsurprisingly, seeing as she doesn't actually know what her task is, but she's getting slowly crushed by these encroaching walls. Uh, the unimaginable taunts her, reminding her of all the people that warned her not to come and face them, like Chin, Lank, the uh, whole of the prefecture, and the thinker. And mention of the thinker reminds her of a conversation they had when she went to him to ask for directions. She asked him, how can someone defeat the unimaginable? And he says, in order to solve a problem, one must understand the problem. But that in itself is a paradox because... How can you understand something that is beyond comprehension? Mm -hmm. But she finally notices that for uncomprehensible beings, they do have defined traits. They are silhouettes, after all. And so she opens her copy of the rule book and begins to describe what she thinks the unimaginable may look like. She tells them that they have googly eyes, buck teeth, uh, scrawny pole legs, antlers, noodly tentacles, and a stumpy trunk. Um, and so the unimaginable takes this form and uh, the challenge is complete. The unimaginable are defeated. The city is saved from this problem that supposedly had no solution. The trio return to the prefecture who have still made no progress in finding a way for her to go home. But she stays on as a problem solver. And the next problem is installing a light bulb. And that is the end of nice. unimaginable. Nice. Did I like it? I don't know. It was different. I did find myself... It's pretty short. So I read it... And I, was like, I need to... I read through certain bits a couple of times, especially the bits when mm -hmm. they're... Because it's all circular logic and written in such a way where people are trying to explain things without actually explaining them because they cannot be explained. It can, at least for me, get a bit confusing... Uh, especially in the use of the word imagine, because I said things can be imagined, so they imagine things a lot of the time. Right. But you can't put a mm -hmm. negative in front of it, so you can't not imagine something because that is bad and invokes the unimaginable. Mm -hmm. um, I did also have some issues with the art, with the fact that from panel to panel, some of the characters could look quite different, but because they're all quite distinctive designs... There was never a case of me not right. knowing who anybody was. It was more, you didn't look like you did a page ago. But if you like weird short stories, it's certainly worth a try. You know, if you're someone that's maybe never read a comic book before, you could certainly do worse because it's a one and done story that's, you know, it's easy enough to read. It doesn't look the worst. Are there better comics out there? Yes. But yeah, it was fine. Not bad. I mean, I do, as you were describing it, it reminded me a lot of... Have you seen the... Uh, I guess it's like a musical stage production or kind of a movie now. Uh, Hamilton, the, the Broadway show. Yes. And there there is a song called Quiet Uptown where they talk about the unimaginable, which is like the loss that they went through. And like every time you say it, I'm just <laughs> thinking of that song in my head now. Uh, so. I would say this is a 
not as good as Hamilton in any way. No songs here. If you like musicals, this is not the <laughs> for you. Musical comedy books. Is that a thing? Maybe. Maybe there's a gap in the market there. Maybe. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I read this month. Next month, I don't know. Absolute Carnage by Donny Case is on the top of my stack. So maybe I'll be heading my way back into the big two. I think I'm going to read something from DC, which I don't often do, but maybe I will challenge myself to read something from DC. So if you have any yeah. recommendations, let me know. Well, I mean, a lot of the DC I've read is most of it has been was Snyder's Batman run. Um, mm-hmm. As someone that's actually read that, I think it'd be quite interesting to get your take. But I do think I came I came to it a bit late. Everyone said it was so good, and so I yeah, it's fine. I've read some of that Batman, I think, right? It's the, the owl stuff, the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first two volumes are about the owls. Yeah, I've read some of it. I enjoyed it. I mean, I think I stopped because I couldn't get the vo- the next volume, and then I just kind of forgot that I was even looking for it, so that's just where, where it stopped. I was considering either reading uh, Wonder Woman or oh, Green Lantern, I'm but we'll see. I must admit, I'm more of a... Well, it depends on who the, the, the titular lantern is. I'm a... I'm one of those strange people that likes Kyle. Kyle the best. I like Kyle. Yeah, I like Kyle. I like all of them, really. Like, I like Kyle. I Well, I mean, I think there's two more now that I don't even know their names. I think there is... Is there Jessica. a Jessica, yeah. maybe? I think there's a... a and there's a, a guy Oregon. that looks like a wrestler. Green Lantern, I think they're... Right. In, like, a wrestling... Person. Yes. Yeah, I think... Yeah. So, those two, the newer ones, I'm not right. as familiar with them. But, like, you know, Kyle, Guy, uh, John... Who's the Hal? <laughs> yeah, and no, they're all... Yeah, all, all great. I find Kyle is the one that uses the ring the best. As he, I think he's he's like an artist. So mm-hmm. it's the most, you know, how John's art. Yes. I made a tank out of it. Cool. Uh-huh. So I made flying monkeys is always the one that I uh, uh-huh. jump to. And I think his costume's the best. But yeah. That's, a, that's a, a rogue opinion. People like the, the classic just green and mm-hmm. white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe I should, maybe I should read Blackest Night again. <laughs> a bit of love. Well, I mean, that's kind of why I was considering uh, Green Lantern, because I do have... Is Blackest Night the first one? Yeah, Blackest Night. I, I do have Blackest Night, so I was like, I should read this. So maybe I'll give that a try. It's either that or Greg Rucka's Wonder Woman, which is also chilling there. Well, we'll find out. So it'll be one of those two. Roughly 30 days' time. Um, there you I'll go. I'll say again, like, share, subscribe. This month, if the, the, the pattern continues, 30 listens, this will be the month where we hit 400. Or the big four oh maybe oh maybe or this will be the moment like nah i can't i can't do it anymore i don't want to hear about <laughs> 3.99 just stuck at 3.99 um rodrigo tell us about other things about movies and other things that are going on in your life um yeah i i am part of the the team that started uh the magazine site or, or magazine i guess website uh Laird Butter, we have a podcast that we are on break now we did our last episode it had released last sunday so I'm I don't have an active podcast going, but I did uh, start a video game podcast with friends called uh, Your Podcast Is in Another Castle. It's just kind of weekly reviews. So if you want to find more about that, you can go to uh, Another Castle CA on all social medias. There you go. What have you been uh, playing as of late? I've been playing this game called For the King with friends it's kind of like a dungeons and dragons type situation but everything is automated so because my thing with dungeons and dragons is i love it conceptually it's like i don't want to be the dungeon master and also i don't think my friends want to be the dungeon master 
And so there's a lot of like work into that. But this is like the dungeon master is the game. And then you don't even have to figure out like your your roles because it's all automated within the game to, to let you know if you did your checks or not, if you passed. So it's fun. It's very fun. Uh, you should check it out if you haven't for the king. Um, I'm also playing like on the like I'm playing it with two friends because it's like a three character uh, narrative, um, but you can also play it by yourself. So I playing I'm playing it on the side by myself, controlling three characters, and I'm playing it with friends. Each one controlling a character. Definitely more fun when you're playing with friends than by yourself. No other way. Uh, yeah. Bit, never played Dungeons and Dragons. It's always appealed, but I've never met anyone that else that plays it. That's the problem, isn't it? I can't play it. By, that's not a thing. I cannot play that by myself. Yeah, and here's the thing: like with Dungeons and Dragons, it's like there are. It's almost like, you know, when you, you see Charles Xavier putting on Cerebro and there's like specific lights here and there. It's like there are specific people that have the organization and the desire to be the dungeon masters. And so I'm sure for every person out there that wants to be a dungeon master, they are easily able to get the circle of people around them that are like the lazy people <laughs> like me that just want the story and to roll a dice. But the other way around, when you don't want to be the dungeon master or when you don't have, like, you know, like that's harder to then find the person. So I think, uh, yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of people like us that are very into the idea of Dungeons and Dragons, but have not played it, do not play it just because, you know, it's it's hard to get your your team going. But for the people like that, maybe check out this game for the king. Um, I've been playing Neo. I've been playing Neo for months. The... uh... I don't know. It, is that it? It's like I a, haven't played it. It's like a Souls like, but uh, more samurai focused. Um, yeah, I've been playing it for months. I. Uh, How do you feel about games that take you months? Though sometimes I'm like, if this is taking me months, then maybe like I should just move on to another game. And you know, like, why am I still dedicating myself to this if I don't have the motivation to finish um, it quickly? Yeah, that's very true. The problem I have is uh, I play on. Uh, PlayStation and they have trophies and there's something about them that just wormed their way into my head. Like, well, mm-hmm. I, haven't got, I haven't got you all need to of them, plan on them, so I will not stop until I have them. But I mean, in this case, I have sort of played other things on the side because getting my yeah my uh, poor titular the character William killed millions of times in a row and making zero progress is a bit. Uh, sometimes you need a bit of a break. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For um, sure. But yeah, while well, stop playing video games, I'll be finding time to to read comic books. Probably absolute carnage. Or or maybe I'll start yeah. that irredeemable omnibus is on the top of my thing. It's like, well, do I just? Because I was thumbing through. It's like, where where do I stop? Because they don't seem to be like the covers of the individual issues. Like, well, how do I know? Do I just stop and just say irredeemable omnibus part one? This first bunch. Yeah, I also recently purchased like the Sweet Tooth Compendium, I think it's called, or like whatever the collected version of it is. And it's like so <laughs> big and heavy that I'm like, I don't know when I'm going to start tackling this. So it's not going to be next month. Have you seen the uh, Netflix show? I have seen it. That's kind of why I went back and I bought it because I was like, I, I like uh, the concepts that are explored here. I would love to see what the original material did. So I, I mostly haven't, it came up and I was like, hmm, I haven't read it. Yeah, I, I'll, uh, I added it to my watch list. Would you would you mm-hmm. recommend? Yes, I think it it, it is uh, dystopian, but it is a dystopian in a very refreshing way. That often, like dystopian stuff, feels heavy. I think this felt fun and, and, and jovial, and you know, I'm not too big on, on kid actors, of which this has a couple here and there, but they were uh, not terrible. They were good. They were good. I think I think it's a good show. 
I saw Fast 9 last week and I came to the sad, sad realisation. I don't think this franchise is for me anymore. Well, did you start? Oh, anymore. I was going to say, did you start at 9? You just no, thought you were going to give yeah. this one a shot. Okay. So I think I made the mistake of, well, I haven't seen them all in a while. I will watch them all. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yep, the first few, they aren't, they are. They aren't the same as how they ended up becoming. Then you get yeah. to Fast 5 and you're like, yes. This is the pinnacle of the franchise. Mm-hmm. Then you've got six and seven that are a bit worse, but they're still good. And then, uh, so I was uh, saying to the, a friend I went to see it with, uh, Fast Five, they are still criminals doing crimes with cars. Then in Fast Six, they are recruited by the FBI, whatever, to solve, to stop another bunch of criminals that are doing crimes with cars. And like, okay, I can sort of buy this because the police guy, The Rock, was in the previous one. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Then in 7, this Kurt Russell is introduced as sort of like the head of the FBI, Mr. Nobody. And that's when the films become about finding some world-ending device. So basically, they just become a bunch of superheroes with cars. And it's like, but I liked it yeah. when they were criminals and did did crimes. And then... Seven is still good because it has the other, the you know, sort of like the send off of Paul Walker. I think that holds it. If it didn't have that, I don't think I'd like. I think you know it would be further down my ranking list. And then right. eight is like, oh, they got to stop some other world-ending device. And then in number nine, it's that again. But some, of course, there is another, some other device that has been created that needs Vin Diesel and his friends to. Uh, they're the only people that can stop. Yeah. I think you have to be uh, an intensely passionate car person to believe that any type of narrative would be driven by like cars, as in like they're superheroes where their power is yeah. driving cars. Like the the car is such a big random question in all of this. It's it's like the part that takes me entirely out. Like I think in the beginning in the early movies when you kind of remember. Um, was it Devin Aoki, like the, the the actress that was one of the the female drivers? Like, I think yeah, there was a moment where she's kind of like doing the the flag thing, so that they start the race, and that seems kind of. Uh, it reminds me that once upon a time, these people were just like drag racers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that. That's what they did. That was what it was based on, and I don't know where they are now. The first, the first film, Vin Diesel's gang is stealing VCRs out of the back of a lorry. That's what the plot is about. And in now number nine, they go into it's space. Cars. Spoilers, they go to space. Yeah. And that, that, was, that was too much for me. Luckily, there's only yeah. one left, supposedly. I will watch there it. Is just not. Because then I've seen all To dead. wrap it up. But I will give you bad news that this is a, a, a franchise that makes so much money that it will never end. I don't know. See, this is the first one where it did sort of look like people didn't want to be in it anymore. They're sort of like, oh, I have to because I signed a contract. Maybe Vin Diesel wanted to be in it because what else he got going on? There's no Riddick mm-hmm. films coming out anytime soon, mm-hmm. which I'd be much more keen for. Uh, but uh, alas, Fast and oh, Furious no. it is. I think I'm going to go see Black Widow later. That'll be hopefully better. Oh, that'll back be to fun. The, back to the MCU. Yay, tried and true. They're never bad. They're average at mm-hmm. best. Average yeah, at worst, even. Sure. They are great at best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is, that's kind of what they're going for. That they, it, It's fun. You'll have fun, I'm have sure. Have you seen it yet? No, I have not, but I will. You're going to go see it in the cinema? You're going to watch it at home? We don't have cinemas yet until oh. next week, I think. Yeah, yeah July 16th. Well, I guess that answers your question for you. 
Yeah. Oh, see, we've had cinemas for a while. Uh, right, we are just ra- n- inane rambling now. This has been the PhD <laughs> Student Reads plus life updates, I guess. The bonus sub-podcast at the end there. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been Dane Landwood. That's been Rodrigo Cockton. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.